Hello, this is Dr. Jason Lee. On tonight's podcast, I'm talking with Dr. Karina Venter, PhD and registered dietitian, associate professor at University of Colorado. Um, she is probably the world's most uh, famous registered dietitian and faculty in the field of allergy immunology. So I'm really delighted to have her here on tonight's show. So uh, welcome, uh, Karina. Thank you, and thank you for having me um, on your show or podcast. Yeah. Look forward to the discussions. Great. So, um, yeah, uh, just uh, maybe you could tell the listeners about yourself. I think you did some training in South Africa and in, in the UK afterwards, and then now you're very prominent in, in our field. Yeah, so um, I'm fortunate. I've lived and worked in three countries in the uh, and three continents, really. Um, I studied um, my undergraduate degree in dietetics at the University of the Free State in South Africa. Um, we then moved to England. My husband is a physical therapist, as you say, in this country. Um, and we moved to England where we lived in the Midlands and then moved to the Isle of Wight where I did my PhD. The Isle of Wight is well known for um, their cohort studies because people have their children on the island, they grow up there, they leave, go to university or school, as you say, in, in this country again, and they get married, move back to the Isle of Wight where they have children. So we can do these transgenerational research studies. So I've, I've done my PhD there um, in the prevalence of food allergy in, in what is called the FAIR cohort or food allergy and intolerance research cohort. Then I moved to Cincinnati for two and a half years because I'm really interested in eosinophilic esophagitis and, you know, really great place to learn more about that. But um, I missed working um, in the field of prevention and doing research in prevention and prevalence. And so when I was offered the position by Drs. Fleischer and Greenhalgh in Colorado, um, I thought it was a great opportunity and we've just bought a house. So we're very happy as a family. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. And we're going to stay. So um, it's good that you're not video recording me tonight because I literally sit between a pile of boxes. But um, yeah. Hey, it's okay. If you only knew that I was in the basement of my house right now <laughs> recording this. So, um, yeah. So the those uh, aisles are very interesting in, in the UK. They're not just known for their cows, but they're known for, uh, you know, the, the 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 sort of the excellent research that happens, the transgeneration, as as you say, because people don't tend to uh, move out permanently. There's not a lot of uh, influx in or out. Um, great. So you know, you've you've done a ton of speaking this year at almost every single allergy conference. Um, what would you like people to understand in terms of food allergy management? I think, you know, and I hope that um, the NIH will forgive this comment, but the only time when they refer to um, the nutritionist, actually, and not a dietitian, but the nutrition consultation in the NIAID guidelines is when they mention the label reading. And so I think the, the main message I would like to get across is that, you know, the nutrition consultation or the dietetic consultation in a food allergy clinic is so much bigger than just teaching people how to read food labels. And so, um, but in order to do that, we need to train dietitians at mass so that mm -hmm. they understand the complexities and the nuances of um, food allergy um, diagnosis 
and then alongside that management because it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all dietetic consultation. I, I would say that I, I really, every time I meet with a family, uh, you know, I, I base my advice and, and how I manage the consultation and how we will manage the food allergy um, very differently. Yes, uh, for sure. I think, uh, you know, in Canada and Toronto, one of my former teachers used to teach the uh, registered dietitians course, and he essentially had three hours in, uh, you know, multiple year curriculum to teach everything possible about uh, not just food allergy, but things like EOE management. And, you know, it, it's very, it was at that time, at least it was very poorly understood uh, what, if anything, the role of empiric diet versus skin prick test diet was. So, um, yeah, there's... Uh, a lot, I think, that registered dietitians um, know uh, that, you know, that medical doctors do not know and, uh, you know, vice versa as it relates to specifically the field of allergy immunology. Uh, you know, the, not all registered dietitians actually know uh, the breadth and depth of knowledge that you do, right? So, uh, you know, I think there's definitely more value in you speaking even more uh, to both the medical doctors and the, uh, the allied health um, preferably registered dietitians, yeah, as well. No, and, and that's that's true. You know, as a dietitian, my interest was intensive care units, and that's what I did. And so when the dietitian on the Isle of Wight retired and they offered me the position, I can remember getting to the end of my first food allergy clinic and thinking, everybody I saw today is probably going to die because I didn't understand half of what the allergist said. You know, words like sensitization but not clinically relevant or you know somebody might have a really small skin prick taste and then the doctor says I want you to give very strict advice because this child is at high risk of anaphylaxis because of the history they came in with mm. and I just used to think wow every single patient he comes with a different story and you know I I don't understand where he's coming from and that was after my very first clinic I said to the allergist and Professor Arshad, who's actually speaking at the college meeting this year, I said, you know, I, I'm going to, if you want me to continue to work with you, I'm going to need to do some further training because I really need to understand what you're saying. And I don't just mean English. Mm -hmm. um, and so I then started with the master's course at Southampton University and never looked back. I fell in love with immunology and allergy right from the word go. And my master's course developed into my PhD. So um, I, I definitely think not everybody that understands food allergy understands nutrition, but mm -hmm. like you also said, not everybody that understands nutrition understands food allergy. And so a lot of training, I think, is needed both ways. Yeah, for sure. Like certainly uh, I could not write a you know, TPN order on an ICU patient uh, or anything to that extent. Um, but uh, TPN is total parenteral nutrition for those that are listening and may not yeah. be familiar. Um, yeah, so it, 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 is, it is a lot. And I think you're doing a lot to sort of build bridges between the two fields uh, to have maybe more of a, like a collaborative approach and to essentially educate both, uh, both sides in this. Um, Thank you. Yeah, so, yeah, it, allergies is very fascinating. Immunology is certainly very fascinating, especially with the individualized advice that sometimes happens with clinical history. Um, so you mentioned that you do do a lot of work in EOE, eosinophilic esophagitis. So this is a condition where the body starts, you know, recruiting a lot of a specific white blood cell called eosinophil into the esophagus 
eventually leads to complications of the esophagus turning into like a larynx and having strictures and food impaction. Um, in, in your mind, what is the role of the dietitian in uh, eosinophilic esophagitis? I think, you know, alongside IgE-mediated allergies, which has got its own complexities, I, I think the, the role of the dietitian is absolutely crucial for these families because often, more often than not, it, they don't just have to avoid one food, but they have to avoid multiple foods. So the main trigger of EOE in children in the United States is milk, but, but then we also see about between 40 and 65% who would need to go on a four-food exclusion diet, which would be milk, egg, wheat, and soy. Um, there are many questions, you know, um, in terms of do we avoid make-and-tain traces or produced in a factory? I think nobody has a clear answer on that because it's so difficult to study in EOE. We need to talk about, you know, food preparation. Um, we need to talk about suitable products. Um, again, my, my classic storyline is if they have to do the six food exclusion, which is milk, egg, wheat, soy, uh, seafoods, so fish and shellfish, and um, all the nuts, peanuts and tree nuts. And on top of that, we advise them to avoid anything that says may contain traces of um, you know, any one of the six allergens, then there is no commercially available bread um, mm. in the United States for that person. So, um, you know, these diets can become extremely limited. And so then, you know, it's it's really getting down to getting them to buy a bread maker, giving them suitable recipes that will work. Talk about, you know, when they're teenagers going out with friends, um, what they can eat. So, um, and then, you know, my particular um, interest in EOE, and I'm just waiting for my samples to be delivered from Australia because Ralph Heiner left now. He did the PPI versus four food exclusion. Mm -hmm. So all the CRA and tissue samples of those participants are coming to me for further analysis. I'm really interested in finding out how IgG4 just respond to food intake and food exclusion. We've got mm -hmm. some data but limited studies comparing sera versus tissue. And then, of course, how cutting, you know, 80% of what somebody can eat um, out of their diet and how that will affect their gut as well as esophageal microbiome. Because, again, the Spanish group from Alfredo Lucendo clearly showed how just taking foods out and then putting it back can change the esophageal microbiome. And alongside that, the, the innate immune system. So I think... I'm talking a lot now, but we can learn so much about um, EOE in terms of research. But point, you know, the, the main point of the dietetic consultation is just try and get some normality within all these exclusions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting. I think like the way I view EOE. So I run an EOE clinic a half day a week. And okay. uh, what I typically see is that, you know, the, the role of dietary management uh, is very crucial. But even when I, you know, uh, advise patients on this, I almost always refer to a dietitian I work with uh, because, yeah, I don't know how to make bread recipes. I, I don't know how to cook it, cook anything for that matter. And uh, it, it's really hard to advise patients, uh, you know, on uh, some of the more minutiae questions of synonyms for the same ingredient, uh, things like that. I think uh, a dietitian would know more than I would. Um, and certainly for patients who fail PPIs, 
or other, you know, quote unquote, easier treatments, the, the dietary approach is the only way to go. Um, it is, and particularly with my EOE patients, I spend a lot of time looking at websites with them, you know, mm -hmm. websites with suitable alternative foods that may be six food free, four food free. We look at websites with recipe information. So um, that's that's definitely a huge part of my consultation um, when I when I see patients with EOE. What is the website that you would recommend for patients doing like a two or four or six uh, food elimination diet? For EOE. Okay, so the AppFed website, which is mm -hmm. the American uh -huh. Partners for Eosinophilic Diseases, mm -hmm. they've got some useful information as well as, you know, uh, free from recipes. Oh, um, great. I also like kids with food allergies because they also have quite a number of recipes, you know, with multiple food exclusions. Um, we always visit the FAIR website, which is Food Allergy Research and Education. Um, I like FACT, which is F-A-A-C-T. I've mm -hmm. just forgotten what it stands for. They've got some really nice recipes. And then in terms of products, um, the DAYA, D-A-I-Y-A, the DAYA website, they have um, things that I wouldn't recommend for everyday eat because I do like people to cook, but they have ready-made pizzas that's free from all the top eight allergens. They have macaroni cheese that's free from the top eight allergens. Oh, great. And they have really nice yogurts. So, you know, you know, when teenagers go out to a slumber party and everybody else is having a burger, at least they can whip out their um, you know, pizza that's also coming out of a box or a wrapper and they can heat it up and so, so that's the kind of things that I would discuss. Um, for the younger kids, you know, everybody wants to eat mac and cheese. So mm -hmm. it's very hard to cook mac and cheese on a six-foot exclusion. So mm -hmm. that's another way, um, you know, that to make life easier. But I have to also say that this is where the dietitian comes in because a lot of these products would have corn in. They also now start to use more pea flour in these products. So when you have an f patient, you know, you're going to have to know which ones really are suitable for those patients. But for EOE patients, um, DAYA in particularly works really well because they don't have the, the main top eight allergens in their products. Oh, great. So, yeah, the uh, APFED.org is a very good resource that uh, Karina yes. mentioned. That's the American Partnership for Eosinophilic Disorders. The uh, fact is the uh, other website, their website is actually easy to remember, foodallergyawareness.org. Uh, it stands for Food Allergy and Anaphylaxis Connection Team, the F-A-A-C-T. So that's great. So you know what? I'm going to start recommending these resources now, too, in my practice. So uh, thank you for that. Um, yeah, um, one question just on the six-foot elimination diet. Um, you know, m most studies don't, like biopsy-proven EOE uh, studies, don't show a huge role for any seafood. Uh, would, you, would you agree with that? Like, it almost seems that it's not the causative food in, in most patients, uh, you know, things like, uh, you know, actual fish or crustaceans or bivalves. Yes, definitely. So, you know, um, when I worked in the United Kingdom, I saw adults too. Mm -hmm. And on the odd occasion, we might have had fish, but children in the United States, I've, I've never had a child who reacted to fish in terms of EOE. I think same applies really to, to nuts, you know. Um, we've got about five cases that I know of reported in Colorado Children's where peanuts was the trigger. Um, three nuts, I've never seen a child with 
you know, EOE triggered by tree nuts. But now, of course, we're beginning to see these more complex cases where we may have had an IgE-mediated peanut allergy, we have EOE to milk, egg and wheat, and now FIs to pea appear. Um, mm. So, so in those cases, I've, I've seen nuts and seafood play a role, but just straightforward EOE, I'd mm. say very rarely, if ever, I've seen seafood in kids and just a handful of nuts, no tree nuts that I can recall. Do you see um, EOE as like the uh, sort of the fifth manifestation in the allergic march? Uh, you know, with kids starting out with atopic dermatitis, uh, developing the AR, food allergy, asthma, and then, and then maybe EOE uh, as sort of the last step. Because, you know, it really, like to me, when I conceptually understand it, uh, the cytokines, the same, uh, you know, gene mutations that are involved in asthma seem to be really related in eosinophilic esophagitis uh, with the TSLP, uh, T-slip receptor, those kind of single nucleotide polymorphism, things like that. Like, would you would you agree with that kind of, uh, you know, thinking about how, how to explain and understand this condition? I, I think so. But then, you know, I think one of the issues we have with UE, and I've just discussed that with Evan Dellen last week, if I can name drop, is that sure. we, we think it sort of like develops later. But I think it's just because we don't do endoscopies in six months mm -hmm. old. Mm -hmm. But I, I definitely think, you know, it's like you say, there's lots of similarities between asthma and EOE from both a genetic and an immunology basis. So whether it's the fifth one or whether it's perhaps one of the first ones, we don't know. And then, you know, also now that we have these patients with OIT developing EOE, mm -hmm. um, then you take the allergen out and they may, you know, um, recover. I, I think it definitely tells us that EOE is definitely part of this allergic march. Um, some people don't believe in the allergic march anymore now. They say that it's all atopic trajectories, mm -hmm. but it's definitely within that group of manifestations. And um, so, so yes, I, I, I definitely think it's it's part of the part of the story. But exactly where it fits, whether it's beginning, middle, or end, I think. Um, we, we will see over the next few years. And the other thing that I wanted to say, I know that um, Mark Rodenberg um, was one of the co-authors of a paper published in Jackie two years ago, where mm -hmm. they looked at early life risk factors for eosinophilic esophagitis. Mm -hmm. But those risk factors are exactly the same as, as risk uh, factors for allergic diseases, which yes. I think just once again prove your point. Mm -hmm. It's probably all the same disease, you may just have different symptoms or different manifestations. Yeah, and, and you're right. We were talking about this uh, briefly on, on a Twitter chat the other day. Uh, the IgG4, you know, one of the mechanisms of action for OIT is, you know, generation of IgG4 and, uh, you know, the fact that it's linked with uh, EOE. Other sublingual immunotherapies are linked with this. And, you know, I've, I've had, a, a, like, you know, pretty dramatic success blocking uh, using dupilumab in the treatment of a refractory EOE case as well. So uh, dupilumab is a drug that blocks uh, IL-4. Uh, IL-4 is a signal that causes your body to switch from IgM antibody to IgG-4. Uh, so it, it's quite interesting how uh, these kind of things play a role. Um, you know, there may be another role for uh, dupilumab, maybe blocking the, the chemotaxis or the, or the white blood cell getting into the esophagus. But uh, it's all really fascinating. And, and it feels like we're kind of still in the stone ages in terms of our understanding of this condition. 
I think so in many ways, and I think the IGG four, um, you know, the ro role of IGG four in EOE, I, I think is fascinating because, you know, it goes against everything you'd learn on day one in Im immunology class. You mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. IGG four means tolerance. That's yeah. the story, and now that's not what we see in EOE. Um, but I also we we have a patient we put on wheat OIG, beautiful seven year old boy, six months came in last week. He says, I can't eat my crackers because when I chew and chew, he says it reads me right there in the back on the bone. Oh, no. I can't swallow it. So, you know, you just think, well, this sounds like a classic case of EOE. So, oh, um, you yeah. know, we'll, we'll just have to see how that works out. Yeah, and you're right uh, with the other comment you made. We don't scope patients uh, on their esophagus at any time. So we, we don't know when it really starts. Uh, maybe it's it's always there along with the asthma uh, and maybe along with the allergic rhinitis. We don't know when it starts. So um, it's a very interesting, uh, you know, thought-provoking comment you made there. Um, just, uh, you know, just to wrap up, uh, you know, what are some other areas of allergy immunology where you know, dietary strategies play a very key or crucial role in, in the management, uh, you would say. You know, I think I did a paper um, last year um, published in Clinical Experimental Allergy with uh, Marian Gruch from Mount Sinai, Roseanne Meyer, who lives in France, works in London, and then um, Meryl Netting from Australia, because we tried to give a really worldwide overview of the individualized management of food allergies if people want to look that up we also got the cover that month of the journal so i was very pleased but i think the things that we highlighted really is that we need to understand of course label reading but also that it differs you know across the world and um, food allergen labeling and mm -hmm. that people travel people travel now you can't just give advice about american labeling to a family who i love when they say they summer in europe because, you know, we, they have to understand how the European labeling laws work. Mm -hmm. um, we need to understand that it's about individualized avoidance. The days of avoiding all nuts when you're just peanut allergic is over. People are mm -hmm. tolerant to baked milk and egg, and that may mean very different things to different patients. Mm -hmm. um, we need to understand about cross-reactivity, about all these novel food allergens like insects and candy bars that cross-react with houseless mites. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, I'm going to say, you know, we need to understand how nutrition, mm -hmm. apart from food allergens, you know, interplay with the microbiome and the immune system and epigenetics and, you know, whether there's a role for nutritional modification, perhaps to induce tolerance development, other than just feeding them the, the allergen that they are um, reacting to. And, you know, there's some great data coming from Roberto Cagnani, again from, from Italy, showing that the kids who develop tolerance to cow's milk allergy um, epigenetically have changes which we don't see in the kids who remain allergic. And Sipinda Bunyavanic from Mount Sinai is telling the same story looking at the microbiome. So I think, you know, I'd, I'd like to see that the future of food allergy management would Focus, of course, on allergens and making sure our patients are safe, but also really look at the bigger picture of the nutritional management, perhaps to induce tolerance um, to those allergens. 
Yeah, that is very, very fascinating work, uh, especially with the uh, uh, the new changes and uh, you know uh, insight into microbiome and epigenetics. Uh, epigenetics, for the listeners who are, don't know, uh, it's the change of the expression of your genes uh, based on how the you know the DNA is wrapped or based on adding these groups called methyl groups onto uh, where the uh, dimmer switches are for the genes. It, it's very fascinating. It's something that can change how your genes get expressed without actually necessitating a genetic change. So um, very fascinating. We are like, it does really feel like we're in the stone ages for me, at least for me. Uh, there's so much more to know about this. And uh, it, it seems like we're going to, toward like more of a very highly individualized uh, uh, sort of advice for both, you know, uh, dietary and nutritional advice for patients uh, with uh, food allergies and, uh, you know, maybe even how to prevent them. So um, lots of stuff being done. And it's very fascinating. Yeah. And if they are interested, I'm giving five talks on, on those topics um, at the American College meeting in November in Houston. So Great. Yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there too. Well, yeah. then, um, and the first day um, on the, the food allergy symposium, um, I'm definitely going to hop, skip and jump over each one of these and show some novel data that I haven't published yet from our cohort in Denver. So I hope people find that that interesting. Yeah, great. I look forward to uh, meeting you in person. Good. Thank you very much for doing this. All right. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you.